Guys, I don't know if they're going to shut the back of the room, but we can get started, I think. Any first timers here in the room? South by, first time? Yay. Me too. I mean, growing up in a small lake town in Maine, if you would have told me that I would have ended up here with all of you at South by, I don't think I would have believed you. I am so incredibly excited, honored, and just really stoked in general to come talk to you all today about remote work and how it can benefit smaller cities, towns, and communities across America. I'm Mika Cross. I got my start working for the United States Army in uniform. I enlisted from, woo, your army? Huh? I love it. More veterans in the room. <laughs> I raised my right hand when I was 19 years old, enlisted from the city that I was born, which actually happens to be where Kaleem is from as well, and I never knew him, Bangor, Maine. I served my country for nearly 20 years working in all areas of the United States government, even after uniform. So I built remote and flexible workplace programs in the United States intelligence community with a top secret clearance. Yes, I did. I worked in places like the United States Department of Agriculture, the Office of Personnel Management, the FIREA, which is the financial industry, as well as the US Department of Labor, where I met Lori Adams, serving on the advisory committee for the Secretary of Labor, um, where we did all things employment, before jumping over to private industry where I worked with flex jobs and the nation's remote first and premier friendly and flexible employers um, doing employer engagement and strategic initiatives, which included working with economic development partners and communities and organizations to bring more access to remote and flexible work. So hello, friends. Hello, bonjour, Miko. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. So we hope to really structure this as a conversation. We wanna make it really interactive. Please feel free to ask your questions. There's a mic right here in the room. We're small enough. We weren't sure how many to expect. So it's right before lunch. You can keep, help keep the energy up. Um, but we're really here to talk to you about best practices, lessons learned, um, our own remote work experiences collectively, and how your communities might be thinking about bringing more access to remote jobs and career opportunities opportunities through flexible and remote work. So anything you need, if you can ask us anything. Um, but with that, I'm so incredibly honored to be sitting next to the wonderful Colleen Clarkson from Blend Me. He's a long-term remote worker and remote work advocate, works with organizations and employers of all sizes and types to expand their diversity talent pipeline and more. I'll let him introduce himself in just a moment. And we have uh, the lovely Lori Adams from the National Association of State Workforce Agencies, that's called NASWA. Um, the NASWA organization is really unique, and she'll explain it a little bit more, but you know, her organization helps feed the nation's American job centers to the tune of 2,700, which are all around the country and US territories to make sure that employment access is getting down to the service level. Um, and then last but not least, of course, we have Justin from Tulsa Remote. Um, Justin is a fierce advocate, long-term remote work advocate as well, and has been really working hard to bring tremendous success to the community of Tulsa, Oklahoma, of which it is not a remote city, um, rural city rather, but um, really has some interesting plays um, in how communities could be thinking about leveraging workspace and community marketing for economic development purposes. So I'm going to kick it over to Justin, actually, to start us off and maybe talk through what Tulsa Remote is and the success that you've seen. And I'd love to also invite you to maybe give some advice and wisdom around repurposing office space and building a sense of community that is appealing to remote workers, especially as we're facing more push from employers around you know, return to office. 
Sure. I might need a reminder on some of that. You just threw a lot at me, so I'm going to take it one at a time. So I'm Justin. It's uh, awesome to be here. Really excited for this conversation. I run a program called Tulsa Remote. Um, for those that aren't familiar, we uh, are a talent-based initiative that's focused on relocating remote workers to the city of Tulsa. We pay them $10,000 to come to Tulsa and work their remote job for a year. So obviously, in that economic development approach, we are... Um, really focused on the individual as opposed to the more traditional uh, strategy, which is getting companies to relocate a number of employees. There's obviously a lot of risk in that because if a company were to leave, oftentimes those jobs also then leave. Um, we go after an individual who's adding an, uh, a job to the economy and they're committing a year to do that job in Tulsa. And um, we've seen a really great amount of success. This program started in 2019. Um, we had about 70 people uh, in that first cohort, and we've risen our um, membership to about 2,300 people that have moved to Tulsa today. That does not include spouses. That does not include children, which we can talk about kind of the trailing impacts of that. Um, but we've seen about $300 million in local earnings added to the community, and 90% of people have chosen to stay beyond that year commitment that they're making in Tulsa, which to us is really the bet that we are placing when we started the program, which is... Tulsa is a place that often needs some sort of incentive or pull to get people there to give it a chance. But we really believe in our heart of hearts that when people come and see what Tulsa has to offer, they're really likely to stick around. Um, and we've definitely seen that ring true. Um, to your second question about space. So one of the things that we also offer in addition to the cash is uh, access to a co-working space. And I think we're, now we can kind of start getting into some philosophical you know, conversations. But to me, one of the biggest things that's come out of remote work is the way in which it's kind of changed the relationships that we all believe um, are, are needed in the workplace. So, for example, um, you know, 10, 15 years ago when I was working in an office, I really relied on oftentimes those relationships in the office to be like some of my biggest relationships in life, right? You see people at the, you know, quote unquote water cooler or eating lunch with them or whatever else and might even find time to go um, and have, you know, dinner over the weekend. I think remote work has really caused us to question that and I think push against that where, of course, we need trust. Of course, we need to be able to get along with our colleagues in order to do the best work that we can. But we're no longer reliant on our work relationships to get through the work day. And I think oftentimes we can bump shoulders with folks in co-working spaces or community building activities and build those relationships in, in new ways that um, allow for, you know, that to be like remote work allows for that to be possible. And I think some of the allure of the program, you were mentioning, now, how many applicants have you had in the past few years? Uh, we've had over 50,000 applications to date. Over yeah. 50, yeah. 50,000. 50, and then that really is amazing as compared to some of the other incentivized remote work programs that some states and other foundations have been doing, which is all great and good. Um, but really, you know, you have a secret sauce there in Tulsa. What do you think it is about the community amenities that appeals to remote workers? And have you seen more local community job seekers take an interest in finding and sourcing remote work as well to stay? Yeah, I, I really believe that the success of Tulsa Remote started decades ago when there was some really intentional placemaking uh, place initiatives uh, that happened in the city of Tulsa. In my opinion, regardless of whether we are you know, extending $10,000 cash or not, people are not going to move to a city that doesn't seem like they can have a good quality of life. 
And Tulsa really uh, invested. We have the uh, country's largest privately funded public park in the Gathering Place, one of the most successful uh, music venues in downtown at the BOK Center. Um, we had seven James Beard Award nominations this past year. Uh, so just a really interesting uh, momentum that's happening in the city that Again, you can't just uh, flip a switch and ask people to come. There has to be a place that that gives that high quality of life. And one of the things that's unique about Tulsa is you can get that high quality of life, but at a very low cost of living. It's still incredibly affordable. Um, we see people that come through the program uh, that you know never thought they'd be able to purchase a home and now have a house for their dogs to run in a, in a backyard or a place to actually park their car. You know, and and they're blown away just by the balance of low cost of living and high quality of life. And I I think Tulsa is really unique in that sense that it's been a lot of work that's been happening over the last couple of decades that leads to this moment of real um, progress. And uh, this program has definitely taken advantage of that. Absolutely. Really emerging as a true leader. And you've had other programs want to benchmark your program and learn from, you know, your key learnings as well, correct? Yeah, there's 70 programs like ours across the country now. If you go to makemymove.com, um, you can kind of see a list of all the different incentives that are being offered and um, places that are trying to incentivize remote workers to move there. And sometimes it's not always remote work, but it might just be another approach at talent. Um, but yeah, there, there's a lot of replication. Amazing. Thank you so much. We'll come back for sure. Um, so, Lori, let's talk a little bit about your organization, maybe your experience as a remote worker, but also your passion around bringing access to viable career opportunities to our nation's veterans, transitioning service members, and military spouses, whom, by the way, often serve themselves in locations that are rural and in smaller cities around the country um, through the American Job Centers and the NLX. Well, she threw a lot at me as well, so I trust her to keep me on track. Well, first off, I have been working remote since before the pandemic, and I'm someone who, when I kind of advocated for that change in my work style, I wasn't quite sure what I was getting into. I knew that I didn't want to move to Washington, D.C., because I knew I couldn't, I'd probably have to get a couple more jobs, and I probably wouldn't have the kind of home life that I was used to. I'd be trying to figure out where to park my car all the time. And so I, you know, when I, when I got the job with, with NASWA, I basically said, I really want to work for you, but I want to work from home. In the back of my head, I'm thinking, I don't know if I can do this, because I never thought of myself as really being disciplined enough to work from home. I was too easily distracted in my own mind, and I thought, you know, am I really going to stay on task? Am I going to be able to complete work assignments? Um, do I really know what remote work is? And this was before the pandemic when a lot of people, face it, thought remote workers were all selling insurance, siding, windows, um, warranties to cars that you haven't owned in 10 years. We've all gotten that call, right? Um, so, you know, I really didn't know <clears throat> what I was going to do and how it was going to work. <clears throat> So that has been my, <clears throat> I can say that, excuse me, you know, really when the pandemic hit and a lot of people were, were looking at remote work opportunities, the only thing that really changed for me was my travel schedule. And instead of being in D.C. once a week um, or once a, a month for a week or someplace else, I was like trapped in my house like the rest of you. And that was a hard, hard thing to do. But my work style never changed. My access to my colleagues never changed. Um, and, and life went on. Um, at the same time, a lot of people, you know, were 
discovering remote work and discovering that no, you weren't selling insurance and cars and warranties, um, and that employers were discovering remote work, and they were discovering what it is and what it isn't. And I will say that one thing the pandemic taught all of us, and people in this room and, the, and employers across the United States, that, pa that remote work is real work. And that people can work from home and they can work unsupervised. I, I truly think that some of this call to bring people back into the brick and mortar location really has two things going behind it. One is they've got big leases that they have to figure out how they're gonna pay that off. And one is that they don't trust their own staff. And working remotely taught me a lot of discipline, taught me to work, un, you know, I was an administrator, I was a manager, but I was still had a supervisor at the end of the day. And I still had people working for me that I couldn't watch them all the time. How many of you in here like to be micromanaged? No one. Well, that does, I'm, <laughs> neither do I. And so I really think that's part of it. And so that's kind of some of my take on remote work. But the reason I got so involved, besides my own personal experience, is because the focus of my job um, is I am the director of veterans policy for my organization. I am not a veteran. Um, those of you, are veterans in the room? We know we've got Army over here. Any other veterans? Thank you for your service. I hope I can be of service to you. But I'm really passionate about serving veterans because I didn't serve. And so I've kind of made that my life's work. But I've become, my eyes have been, were really opened up by my learning of my new job and learning veterans policy and working with the Department of Labor and hearing about some of the struggles military spouses face as they attempt to establish a career at the same time that they're moving every three years or so um, for a permanent change of station, a PCS. And I have met so many military spouses who are so well-educated, um, so smart, so talented, and they are so underemployed. They estimate that at least 63% of the military spouses are underemployed. At the same time, 20% or more are unemployed. And that, um, and that unemployment rate compares to 2.5% for veterans. And part of that struggle is convincing them that an employer should hire them because even though they might leave in two to three years, here's a um, you know, fact, folks, a lot of people leave within two to three years, especially the younger workforce. The days of people working somewhere for 50 years is kind of old thinking. And so I got so, I got so mission focused on spreading the word about the amazing military spouses who reinvent themselves, who have managed all of the stuff in the, in the background while their partner goes off and flies their plane or does whatever they are, they're doing. And so I got really focused on that. And then I started thinking about disabled veterans who have transportation problems. I started thinking about veterans who finished their service and went home to rural America. And how do we convince employers that these are folks that they, they need to hire regardless of where they live? Because that's just, that's not the issue. The issue is do the people have the skills and the ability and the talent and the wherewithal and the motivation 
and they all have that. Nobody survives for 20 plus years in the military if they don't have their you-know-what together. So, so that's really what got me started. Um, my organization is, is, we're not NASA. I get frequently asked if I know any astronauts. I have met one. Um, but we are a, a nonprofit membership organization. Our members are your state workforce agencies. So here in Texas, that's the Texas Workforce Commission. If you're from New York, that's the New York State Department of Labor. So that's who I work with primarily focused on veterans and getting veterans to work and military spouses and promoting remote work. Yeah, absolutely. Oops. Sorry. Am I on, am I on? Okay, great. Um, and on. you know, some of the benefit of higher and greater access to remote work is diversifying occupations and regional talent and being able to upskill workers where they are um, to try to help reverse the rural brain drain. That's something Kaleem and I will explore a little bit more too. But um, how do you see the American Job Centers leaning in with the remote jobs feed that you recently uh, put together so that folks in those 2,700 areas that have access to the American Job Centers can get more digital skills and, and have more um, access to the 50-plus occupations that can be done remotely or in a hybrid environment? Great question. Show of hands, how many of you have been to an American Job Center in person? Great. I knew you would say yes. <laughs> how many of you have ever thought of them as the unemployment office? That's not unheard of, and it's a message that I have been um, working on for 20 years. They are so much more than the unemployment office. They are the employment and reemployment office. As Mika said, there's over 2,700 of them across the United States. They're the place you can go for information about jobs, but they're also the place you can go to get access to retraining dollars and to a number of other programs um, that can help someone make that career transition, whether it's after 20 years in the military or 20 years working at the factory down the street that just outsourced their jobs to Mexico. There are so many things that are available and they're available at no cost. So if someone accesses an American Job Center and they've just left the military service or they just got laid off from their job or they just hate the job they have, there's reskilling opportunities, there's assessments to help people determine what it is that they want to do with the skills that they have. We run into this a lot with the military. A lot of people that leave the military are kind of in a box of what their military occupational specialty is, or MOS. What was yours? Mine, I had two. 71 Lima, which does not exist anymore. That's how old I am. Okay. Um, admin, and then I was a personnel specialist. Yes. Adjutant general. So one thing that can happen in the American Job Center, and I'll speak about veterans just briefly, is a veteran who, um, or a transitioning service member who accesses a center um, is assessed to find out if they have what's called a significant barrier to employment. And that could be that they're disabled, they're at risk of homelessness, they're low income, they just got out of the military, um, all kinds of reasons. And they can, they can access specialized, intensive, what I would rather call service management than case management, to help them to identify what their skills are, how to let them think about what their skills are in a way that they can define when they talk to employers. Um, I've met many, many veterans who, well, I was only this. I was only an 11 Bravo. Well, an 11 Bravo is infantry in the Army. And there are employers who don't really know what that means, so they just think, well, they had a gun, so they must be a policeman. No. 
anybody in that job is a team player, shows up on time, takes care of their equipment, can follow instructions, can wear a uniform, has a dress code, all kinds of things that any employer would value as skills, that they can't really teach people those things, but the military has taught people those skills. A guy I knew that was the flight deck controller on an aircraft carrier, the guy in the yellow shirt. How many have seen Top Gun? Guy in the yellow shirt. I go, how, do, how does that translate into civilian work? Well, I didn't. He didn't think so. And I said, really, you can't multitask? He's the one telling the planes when to take off and leave and not get killed by the, those cables and such. So that's what can happen in the American Job Center. They can help them redefine themselves, identify what skills they have, identify their skills gaps, and connect them to service providers who can help them fill those gaps or get them to training that can help them. And then at the same time, there's all kinds of, my organization also supports something called the National Labor Exchange, the largest nonprofit job board in the United States. It's separate from FlexJobs and they work together. And we have a portal that is for virtual jobs, virtualjobs.usnlx.com. We stood it up before the pandemic. I wish I could say that we were so smart that we you know, really knew that was coming, although I don't think that would be smart to know about the pandemic. But we stood it up because of the need for remote work for those military spouses, those transitioning service members, for people that live in rural communities where there are few job opportunities maybe on site, some small communities that don't have industry anymore. And so we stood all that up, and all of that is available through the American Job Center, as well as business services representatives who are actively talking to employers about job opportunities and how they can maybe look at their hiring needs and which of those jobs could be done remotely or telework or work from home. And I think one of the things that you mentioned is the work that's done in the job centers to really help make a transition, especially for those workers who have only ever worked with their hands and maybe haven't worked in the digital knowledge uh, economy, um, especially in areas that have had industries just dissipated, like my home state of Maine when the paper mills went away, or in eastern Kentucky by the coal mining industries. So Kaleem, do you want to talk a little bit about your experience and, and maybe the opportunities of the moment right now in terms of how we can leverage remote opportunities to diversify local economies like our home state of Maine and others around the country? Hi, everyone. I got to stand up for a second because these chairs are really comfortable and these parties are killing me. I got to just, just shake it out. I got to shake it out a little bit. Um, so my name is Kaleem Clarkson. I'm the um, CEO of Blemmy Inc. We are a fractional people operations consultancy and remote work consultancy. Um, we started in 2012, 2013. So we've been doing this for a little while. Um, and it's definitely fascinating right now. I am also from Maine. Shout out to the 207. I didn't even know Mika and we live like 10 miles from each other. It's kind of crazy how the world works. But um, I'm going to do a little little thing here because I'm just curious because like this has got to be about you I don't want to keep talking um, please stand up if you worked before the pandemic remotely before the pandemic let's let's get a stand up there we go okay that's pretty good please stand up if you could telecommute or work hybrid before the pandemic okay there's more please stand up stay up unless you're hurt it's okay 
If you heard, it's okay. And, and, and if, if you're disabled, you can just raise your hand as well. Um, Got to be inclusive here, right? And then, okay, how many of you all then worked remotely during the pandemic? Okay, 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 okay. That, how many of you all working remotely now? All right. That's almost everybody in the room. Give yourself a round of applause. Woo! Come on, round of applause. This is tiring. Goodness gracious. We're at South, South by Southwest right now. Okay. Um, so one of the challenges, I love my home state. I love Maine. It's beautiful. Um, love my town. Shout out to Stephen King, Mr. King. I love it all. Um, but I was one of the very many who left. Um, how many of you, are, I'm not going to ask you to stand, we'll just do hands for it, and then this will be the last polling for you. But um, how many of you all left your state to attend college? Okay, it's a good amount, but not a, it's about 50-50 roughly. Um, the statistic in Maine is almost 70% um, of students stay in the state. That's not, that's not a lot of people who are staying. So 30% of the, the state, they're leaving, even with the cheap tuitions. They're leaving the state because of the opportunities. Well, one of the things that we've been able to do is work with startups and small businesses on improving what we call the remote employee experience, right? And that remote employee experience is how do you attract the right talent? How do you engage? How do you hire? How do you um, train? How do you develop? And then how do you offboard, right? And one of the things that these rural communities are looking at is inclusion and diversity. So Maine, another little tidbit for you, is the whitest state in the country, literally. 97 point something percent white. It might be a little bit down now. Um, so there weren't too many people that looked like me where I grew up. Well, if you're a company in that area, how can you increase your, your diversity? It's very difficult. And honestly, it's really not fair. Because, I mean, before the pandemic, you could only really hire around your, your talent pool. Now, organizations are becoming a little bit more diverse because they can hire outside of that area. In addition to that, all of those students who left, the reason why they leave, anyone want to have a guess? Huh? There it is, jobs, exactly. So these states, and I think it was one of the, the governor's big push, is how do we keep and retain our college students? Tons of people go to Maine for college that are outside of the state, but they don't stay. And remote work has been a really, really, really big proponent into helping um, keep people in the area. So yes, we can develop, we can, we can grow Tulsa. It's a great example, 70 other programs. The ability to attract talent to the area's natural beauty. People love Arcadia, people love lakes. Um, there are people who love Maine, L.L. Bean. <laughs> um, so every state, every city has their own little vibe and there are people all around the world that would love to enjoy that vibe but really don't have an opportunity then. And for programs like this, it's, it's really helping. Could I double click on that for a second? So I do think that one thing that's really interesting about what you're saying, Kaleem, uh, it's a benefit that we've seen at Tulsa Remote too, is 
there's power in seeing that representation of people choosing to come to Tulsa, right? Where oftentimes uh, our success in a place like Tulsa or other, you know, heartland cities is if I'm, if I'm getting a good job, I'm probably leaving, you know, the city. And that's often how success has been defined in places like Tulsa. And programs like Tulsa Remote, where you see 2,300 people, a lot of them from these big cities that people might have been leaving to, actually choosing to come to the city, there's a lot of it that for me, we don't, you know, there's not really data or any metrics that would tell me this for sure, but I think there's got to be something there where a local child is seeing somebody that works at the New York Times choose to come to Tulsa and live um, and bring their remote job to the city. That changes the way you even think about your own place, you know, and there's power in that, I think, just the representation and saying, oh, okay, maybe success doesn't necessarily mean I have to leave for those that have the ability to do so, but I could actually find success here, um, and I can see that represented across many industries. That, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I just wanted to jump in on what he said, back to what you said, is you're talking about people coming to, to Tulsa for those opportunities, and I'm thinking in my state, I live in Iowa. Um, I know. Hawkeyes, let's go. <laughs> Bracket starts tomorrow, doesn't it? But we have a lot of great jobs. There's, in Des Moines, where I used to live, it's like the Hartford of the Midwest with all the insurance companies, tons and tons of remote work. But a lot of people don't want to move to Iowa for many different reasons, whether it's politics or terrible weather. But there's lots of job opportunities there that you could work for an Iowa employer and still support you know, that employer and do their work, but you could still live on the beach. Um, or you could still live in some place that doesn't get snow, it <laughs> seems like nine months out of the year now. So it's, an, it's, an, it's kind of the flip side to what Justin said of get either you can get people to come or you can get people to get the job but not have to come. That's fascinating. Because, like, people, how many of you, like, Austin, we're not from, many of us aren't from Austin. I know I'm not, but I'm pretty sure they're making some money this week. Okay, so, yeah, I mean, it's a totally right. And the other thing that a lot of my friends, a lot of my friends left in my class. I would say more than half of my class of about 400 my senior year um, left the state. And I was actually having dinner recently with an attorney in New York. And he said, you know, I would love to buy a home, a summer home in Maine. And Mika, she goes home every summer and works from Maine, I do the same thing. So we're not just talking about how remote work, back to kind of what you were saying, like it's not necessarily about me living in Maine full time, but with remote work and this ability, I can now go back home for the whole summer and contribute part time to that economy there. So there are just so many facets, man, like, like what this has an opportunity to do for small towns, mill towns, is fascinating. You know, they, and there's a term for that. It's called a boomeranga. Ooh, the boomer. The boomeranga. boomeranga. That's just our accent. <laughs> Sorry about that. If you're a that. boomeranger, then you lived and grew up somewhere. You left to find your fortune and career. And then later in life, you come back. You might come back part-time with remote and flexible work. You might come back full-time. In fact, you know, there was a Gallup poll before the pandemic that that showed that the majority of workers wanted to move to a rural city or a smaller town, but just couldn't because of economic issues and sometimes because of family and community, of course. Um, but that's why I think it's so fascinating what Tulsa has gotten right. 
And so, Justin, I just wonder, you know, if you're talking to the economic developers in the room or those with a passion and interest around figuring out what they can be doing to attract and retain more workers in their communities, what would you say in order to get it right in terms of that marketing, the branding, the investments with the messaging around community and all the amenities that you have to offer? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that there's something about your city that is unique and is going to attract people to it, and I'd lift that up. Um, that's not going to be the same for everybody, um, but you know, if you want to attract people that you know are going to fit into your city, it's not rocket science, but I would make that shine. Um, there's going to be you know, certain people that it, it works for, there's going to be certain people it doesn't, but I think the more that you can kind of be forward with what makes your city special, um, you're going to attract those people that want to be a part of it. And then also creating spaces and places for people to build that community and lifting up that community in your marketing. So, for example, you, you may not, you know, it may not be this a big remote work program, but perhaps there's a co-working space that everybody, you know, could have access to. Or perhaps it's a monthly gathering of remote workers where you know you're going to be able to, to build that community and meet people that have similar jobs to you. Oftentimes, remote work can be so isolating and can feel like you're doing this alone. And I think just the very nature of having some place to plug in and people to meet that you know at least share some aspect of your background provides a lot of incentive. And I think that in itself is going to attract a lot of people. Am I back on? Thanks. And Colleen, you mentioned the housing market. You know, it's interesting. The U.S. Census Bureau and Zillow did some data reporting around pandemic trends and um, where people were searching for homes during the height of the pandemic and the, the increased shutdowns. And the majority were smaller um, beach towns, rural locations, lake towns across the country. And it's really fascinating. On the Census Bureau website, there's a webinar that was recorded in the top towns and um, communities where they were searching for second homes. Um, and so I wonder, what about the housing market? And, and, and what would you say to employers, Kaleem, also, who might have some reluctancy around thinking about their talent strategies from rural communities because traditionally maybe their occupations didn't reside there? Um, Anything that you've been learning or discussing with employers on that side of the house in terms of the attractiveness of hiring from local? Yeah, so are there any, like, business owners in here that, that run companies? Okay, any managers? Okay, so if you are in a small town, this is kind of it's, – it's, it's interesting because you would think if you're in the town, in, in the local community, uh, we don't need remote work. I'm going to make all my employees come into the office. Well, that's a big no-no, right? I'm going to use our home state again. Um, you, What we like to talk to small businesses in these local communities is that, yes, traditionally you're only um, recruiting talent from your area, and you may be the top employer in that area. But no, not now. You know, you have to uh, stay local but compete global. You are now competing. Your employees that didn't have options before now have global options. So as a business owner in a rural community, you don't want to get complacent. You don't want to say, okay, well, we're good. We've never had any problems with this. Well, you're going to need to implement some sort of workplace flexibility to combat potentially some of the loss of some of your employees. In addition to that, a lot of times... Um, these offices are much further away. The commute, so for me, the commute in Atlanta to downtown is only 
12 or 13 miles, but may take 40 minutes, right? A commute in a rural town where we're from, we'll say a commute from Augusta to Bangor is a solid 60 miles. And it's only 60 minutes because it's 60 miles, but... You can go 90. Yeah, you can go 90. But it's a long distance. And people in even rural states, rural areas, need that flexibility sometimes even more than big cities. So I think that's, you know kind of back to the housing market and employers in these rural areas, that's where we, we kind of come in and, and, and consult and teach and coach and be like, listen, we understand um, that, you know, your talent pool is from that area, but, you, you know, you're now competing globally. So it's almost just as important for small businesses in rural areas to start implementing these uh, flexible work arrangements. I think it's critical for sustainability. I'm going to jump over to you, Lori, in a second because you know during the pandemic, you may have thought that the rise of remote work sort of as a, a stagnant point after 2021. But even on the FlexJob site, where they have more than 50 different occupations and employers, by the way, from nonprofit, academia, Fortune 500, and Fortune 100, they still saw a 21% uptick in remote job postings between 2021 and 2022 in industries and occupations that typically did not offer those kinds of flexibilities, including the U.S. federal government, the nation's largest employer, to the tune of 2.1 million workers globally. And Laura, you have a unique perspective because you work with state agencies and state-funded organizations. What did you notice in terms of mission delivery and the ability to continue delivering services to those who need it most, especially in the employment space during such a tumultuous time in our American history with the shift to remote work? Um, any learnings, best practices, and thoughts around that? And have you seen a more um, committed focus on continuing remote work for those organizations now as we're lifting the restrictions more and more? Definitely. Um, one thing that was really apparent when the pandemic really hit full force were how, was how flat-footed some of the state workforce agencies were in response. Um, and I could, I, I, without naming names of some states, but there were states where they, they only allowed managers to work from home or they only allowed managers to have laptops or they only allowed managers to have cell phones. And there's at least one state that, and this is the, within the veterans unit, they sent everybody home to work from home. But they didn't give them any technology or tools to do it with. And so, you know, they're struggling. How do they, are they using their personal computer, which then is you try and get on a, a government network <laughs> without, you know, going through all the hoop, jumping through those hoops, using your personal cell phone, using your your personal landline, if you still had one of those. And so that was happening. Um, and some states were well positioned. Um, state of Washington, I'll mention them by name. They had already given all of their staff the technology they, they needed to work remotely. And it really wasn't because of the pandemic. It was, it's, you know, basically Seattle, it's home of tech. It's you know, they're supporting their hometown industries, but so many states were not prepared. And they closed American job centers. There's um, the state of Nebraska and the state of Wyoming kept theirs open. Most of the work was done on an appointment only basis, but all the other states sent their staff home or told their staff they could still come into the office, but they only worked, they were working in a closed facility. They did not allow the public to come in. 
So what a lot of states found themselves scrambling to do was to reinvent the way they delivered services because now their customers were remote. And so they were trying to figure out how do we get the word, you know, we're still trying to help people transition out of the military or find a new job or to, you know, get services like how do I get my resume up to speed because it it's, you know, looks like a military resume. And a lot of them started to embrace technology and looked at how do we do virtual career events? How do we convince, you know, start talking to employers about, you know, the work goes on. Yes, restaurants got slammed and a lot of people got laid off, but a lot of companies really staffed up. Um, a lot of companies reinvented themselves. L.L. Bean is a perfect example. They were making boots on the line and they stopped in the line and started making protective gear. And they still needed people to do that work. Now that wasn't remote work, but it was still indicative of what happened. But a lot of companies saw that they could do some of their functions remotely and they could hire people remotely. They, you know, Some of these HR people never met the people that they were hiring because it was done virtually. They hired them virtually and got them working virtually. So it was a huge sea change. Now, um, since the pandemic is, kind of receded, I'm not going to say it's stopped. Some of the states have um, brought people back to work, but they've changed how they deliver services and they've also freed up those restrictions on who can work remotely. So if someone in the state of Montana, huge state, um, you know, they're letting people work remotely or only come in a few days a week or a few days a month. So they've rethought how they delivered services to get more bang for their buck and to be where the people are that need their help. And whether that's on the other end of a Zoom call or it's working remotely, they meet them in a coffee shop in, in some place. So that was a huge, huge change. And it, but it, you know, it was, the beginning of it was really rough, really, really rough. Yeah, I think for a lot of employers, and Kaleem, if you were talking to employers who are looking to push back, you know, after, a couple years of embracing some remote flexibilities and, and maybe they're thinking about pushing more folks back into a physical office. What would you say to them in terms of the value of re maybe reconsidering that or thinking differently about that, especially from a talent perspective? I would just say, listen to your employees first before you make any, it's just so simple. Like I just don't understand how this is happening. Um, have focus groups, uh, surveys, see what it is that they want and design a workplace experience that, you know, you can't design an experience for everybody, but try to design an experience that allows some flexibility because I'm just curious of what the employer-employee relationship is going to look like moving forward. So you're telling me I've done a great job for two years. I'm sure some of you are in here. I see some heads just going, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, you've been doing great for two years, and they're like, why don't you uh, come on back in the office, and you know, we'll let you work remotely once or twice a week. And you're like, nah, son, that's not good enough. If you're not listening to that, to me, I kind of feel like that relationship has been kind of tainted a little. Yeah. You know, like, okay, you sent me home. We've been doing great. We've been communicating. Some things are different, but some things improved. 
why don't we try to work on this some more versus just going back to the way it used to be because of maybe some sunk costs in a building or something like that. So I think it's a, a real basic process, and I'm just curious as to why more companies are not doing this. Survey your employees, use data, listen to them, and then try to design something that kind of that blends that all together. But I have a question for you, Justin. Uh-oh. Yeah. Another government entity. <laughs> government entity. Are you guys remote? Uh, like our, me and my employees? Are you and your team remote? Yeah, we, we are hybrid. So we don't necessarily, like you have the choice. And that's what I was going to build on from yours. Choice. So it's not, you know, Tuesday, Thursday, you're in the office and the other days you're at home. I don't think remote works for everybody. Obviously, there's certain jobs that uh, you just can't do remotely. But even for the jobs that you can do remotely, there's some people that it's just not going to be the best thing. Maybe you get distracted by Netflix, and you know that about yourself. Maybe you've got kids at home, and you're just not as productive. Um, the biggest thing that, that is powerful about this, this uh, movement to me is that we are giving the employee the power to choose. And to me, the best employers that are going to stand out are the ones that allow for office space for those that need it and do it well and allow for that flexibility and center the conversation about work and outcomes as opposed to where you're doing that work or driving towards those outcomes. Those are the people that are going to attract the best employees. Justin, I'm going to ask you one final question, and then I'm going to let the audience come and ask our panel anything that you'd like. If not, we have a short video we can show you and showcase from um, Eastern Kentucky folks that benefited through the Teleworks USA program, which is kind of cool. Um, my last quick question before we open it up for questions from the audience. I'd like to reverse engineer this. So let's talk about the larger metropolitan areas, New York, Boston, all of the larger areas that typically would benefit from having jobs there and people in their cities and metropolitan areas, and they are freaking out. Washington, D.C. is one of them. You know, the mayor there is distressed and is mandating that President Biden push the federal workforce back into the offices for the purpose of buying sandwiches, stimulating the downtown economy, taking metro, um, using, you know, dry cleaning services. What would you say to economic developers and workforce investment specialists in those larger metropolitan areas who are experiencing that um, angst around not having people to stimulate their economies. What would you have them think about redoing their space or thinking about repurposing the way that they work in those larger cities? Yeah, there's got to be some sort of middle ground. There's got to be a way that we can get the best of both worlds. So you see some offices that are converting to residential. Um, you see some offices that are maybe even downsizing their specific space and making it more of like a co-working or, you know, open space area. Um, I think that, you know, the future of spaces like that is going to be centered around community. How can I bump into people that share the aspect of my back, you know, specific backgrounds? Um, and maybe it's not unique to my specific company, um, but a place that I can still work and feel that energy that I get from others um, in a space that allows me to still be productive and, and, you know, build those social relationships with people that are maybe even outside of my company. Um, but there's got to be a way to pull people downtown in these places that are really cool and have a lot going on without requiring you to do a job in a specific place. We can get creative. We've, we've tackled a lot of much harder problems than this. Um, we've built the offices. How do you repurpose that to still bring people and call people in, um, but not necessarily tie it to the, the work that I'm doing on a daily basis? You know, I, I saw this picture of, I think, this town in Portugal, um, where they basically showed this picture of all these cars, and it was crowded. 
and like there was no sense of anything. It was just this crowded street. Somebody Google this, you'll find it. And then they show this picture of this development project that they did where they did not allow people to drive on the streets. They blocked the streets off and made it more so that you could walk around. Um, Pittsburgh's another really great example of how they've made it a really walkable city. This is actually I, I presented at um, TDM, which is Transportation Something Management, can't remember the D. Um, but this is a huge, huge topic in this space. How do you make cities more attractive for people to come together? And a lot has to do about green space, walkable space. Um, affordability. Affordability. Uh, you have senior housing. You know, we, we don't do very well with our seniors in the United States. We could do way better. Uh, my mom loves to party. She's 60-something years old. She'd love to live in a high-rise in Manhattan. Let me tell you that. Um, so I think there's a there's a lot of things that could be done. Um, one last thing on on the the, the company before you, you jumped, um, I love what you said about choice. I feel like when you talk about what does the future of work. Sorry, I had to. You can't get through one of these sessions without saying it. I apologize. Um, it's about choice, and the companies that provide 100% choice will be the ones that succeed and that attract the biggest, the most talent. But then on top of that, companies have to redefine the purpose of the office. I do not, or you do not, most likely do not want to go into the office and do a Zoom call. So why do we go into the office? If there's a purpose, I'm pretty sure all of us would be really happy. But just be, um, I like to say a little slang, don't trip. People want to see each other. Why not make the office a social place? Why not focus on professional development, trainings, conference-style stuff, um, cross-collaboration between teams? Not going in there and, and, and working on one team. No, cross-collaboration. So I think redefining the, the, the office purpose is such a huge thing. And I just really want to jump in on that. From my personal experience in our organization, when I started, I was remote and nobody else was. Now we have continued to grow through the pandemic. And I, here's how I know that I'm not going back into the office, is that my president and CEO went remote himself. He lived in Baltimore, sold his house, and moved to Indianapolis because that's where his grandkids were and his wife's family. So it'd be awful hard for him <laughs> to not walk that walk anymore. So we have grown a lot since over the, since I joined the organization, and I would say that right now we are 99% fully remote, and only because three people are still living in the district, they only go in on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. And the last time I was there, I was all by myself in this office building. It was creepy, um, and I <laughs> you hear all these noises, but I know that we won't we we maintain a presence because. It's a DC-based organization. We kind of need an address. And if we theoretically need to have a meeting there, but we never have. So two years, and we gave it, we've, we have downsized already once, and I know that they're talking about how can they downsize us even more and maintain a physical presence. But it's the physical presence, it's more about optics than it is about people working. Purpose. 
And I think you know the last final note I'll leave you with before we open for questions because we are going to take questions. Um, it's just you know we had the opportunity to have millions of our school age children, some better than not, transition to fully remote and hybrid learning for the last couple of years, and they're coming to our workplaces soon, if not now already. And they're expecting different things. They have different preferences and different demands and desires. So with that, um, I'm going to open the floor for questions. And there's a microphone right over there just so others can hear you if you need it. Ooh, I know so we're many. small, but not everyone wanted to come up. <laughs> close. More questions, more questions. Hello. First of all, thank you, panelists. It's a great panel. Um, I actually have a question for Justin. <clears throat> Excuse me. Justin, you mentioned that you had 50,000 applicants for the Tulsa Remote Program. Uh, what, are the, what are the standards? What are the decision makers to get 70 or 2,300? Or I don't know what the final number was. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, so we are looking for uh, somebody that can work in the United States, has a full-time remote job, and has lived outside of the state of Oklahoma for at least a year. Um, so it's adding a job to the Oklahoma economy that didn't exist before. Um, we are really looking at three primary uh, aspects. One is the economic impact. So what's your job? Is it an industry that Tulsa needs? What's the salary that you make? Um, two is community impact. Have you volunteered in the place that you're coming from? Have you thought about ways that you can, you can get plugged into the Tulsa community? And then third, are you likely to stick around? Are you at least open to the idea of staying beyond that year? Um, we know that it's not going to be for everybody, but uh, we also are trying to, you know, kind of avoid the uh, money grabbers or somebody that's just coming in for that $10,000 and leaving after a year or those digital nomads that we know are just kind of always transient. Um, so re yeah, those are the three things that we're really looking for in that application process. And you can apply online at TulsaRemote.com and it's just like a 20 minute interview process after that application is reviewed. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Tell me Matt Justin. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free to use me as a referral, yeah. Um, my question is, uh, Tulsa is such a fantastic example of the positive aspects of people being able to work remote and choose where they live. There was existing infrastructure that was available to them. But there are also some cautionary tales of particularly small rural communities that were inundated. Uh, Breckenridge, Colorado's example, some of the small towns just outside of Austin are great examples where the city itself didn't have the infrastructure for the influx of remote workers who wanted to live in that area. They, you know, jacked up the housing prices, frontline workers no longer could afford in the, to live in the community. So have you all heard of or know of any um, resources for remote workers to make um, sustainable and smart choices and where they decide to move to now that they have a choice to work remote? I have. That's a great question. Yeah. I, I have, but it comes from employers. So employers who want to retain that talent and know that their workers, because they're listening, wish to desire to relocate somewhere, even if temporarily, will expand some benefits. So they might offer co-working stipends, even a housing stipend, I've heard, um, temporarily. So these are, of course, forward-leaning employers who believe in remote work and understand the power of it. But I've seen it from the employer side rather than from the community side, if that makes sense. I, that said, I think there's a lot more we can do. I mean, take a page out of Tulsa in terms of the private-public partnerships that have been going on, you know, looking at the community need and what the infrastructure is as compared to what the desires and influx of workers are. I think having community voice at the table too in those decisions is huge. You know, uh, not just doing something to a community, but in, in, you know, engaging the community in that initiative or whatever you're trying to make happen and thinking about it in a way that sets everybody up for success. 
obviously attracting the talent is going to be great for a city, but doing it in a responsible way, thinking about how that might impact businesses or the housing market. How can you get ahead of that if it is really something you're going to invest in? That's a great question. Uh, hi, my name is Shannon Thornton, um, Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. Um, we're in like the DC, Baltimore area. Um, I have a question. We do a lot of work with government. Um, folks need closed facilities or they need laboratories to do their work. Do you, we just abandon the idea of that this would be an option for our staff or in your opinion, as far as government work goes, is there suggestions that you can give on how we can encourage more remote work? I feel like I'm talking a lot. You guys have any thoughts on that? I, I could answer it. Well, I was just going to take a page out of the CDC, has done a really good job, especially during the pandemic. They also have a lot of labs, NIH, um, HHS, and such. Um, I think, you know, in terms of offering a flexible suite of options and remote and hybrid being one of them, so although they may not be offered fully remote, you can offer different work schedules, compressed work schedules, and those sorts of things. And then figuring out what your clients' needs are, you know, what is the primary time zone that they're operating in? How are their, how is their work schedule structured at the moment? And trying to offer flexible choice and options to try to meet your workforce where they want to be versus what the, the client needs to. And I think one of the most powerful thing about remote work is the, it's about the work, it's about the outcome. So if you can you know, use that as a conversation with your manager or whoever else to say, what is it that you care most about that I, what's the output that you're looking for me or from me for this? And then there could be some days you have to be in the lab um, but after that, there could be some days that you're doing other things from home. At the end of the day, what cares mo what your manager and you are going to care most about is the output that you produce. So, you know, allowing again that choice to there could be some physical space that's required, um, but getting clear on the output and and your manager putting faith and trust in you that you're going to get it done regardless of where you are. But where you are, Maryland D.C. area has some of the highest rates of remote and flexible work in the entire country during the pandemic, but even before. So you might look at some of the data there, and I'm happy to point you in the direction of where to find some of that. Last thing, higher education has had a similar challenge. I mean, John Hopkins is obviously higher ed too. Um, but like the lab people, a lot of faculty who are doing research, going into the lab, I mean, research, doing the lab work, we all know is a very, I mean, it's an important part of the research but it's a small piece of the research. So writing up the reports, doing things that, um, I think somebody, I'm gonna steal this from Laurel, if you're using a computer, like 40 or 50% of the time, you can do some of your job remotely. So it's just kind of like looking at the task, breaking down, kind of bouncing off what Justin's saying, looking at the task, what task can I do here, and then what task can I do remotely? Right, our, our, we have we built a spacecraft during the pandemic, so we had a need to have to be there, but we also learned a lot that the business operations can be done remotely. So the trouble right now is um, just kind of making kind of a standard policy and putting that in place for a 7,000 person organization. What What is the stance of our organization and what's our posture moving forward as we're trying to bring on new staff, like as an organization, we can awesome. do we can do a little bit of both. But. Did you say you built a spacecraft during the pandemic? Just threw that out. Yeah, like most out people quick. just watch Tiger King or you know whatever else. You built a spacecraft. Yeah, and unbelievable. <laughs> but you know the U.S. intelligence community does this too. I teleworked with a top secret, you know, clearance in a skiff, but 
I took my unclassified portions of my work home. Mm. When I needed to access the classified systems, I went into the building, which was pretty much every day. But you can get creative around how you structure, structure your policies with flexibility in order to. Thank you, guys. Hi, thank you so much for the presentation. I'm Jahari Sword, founder of Impursuit Career Partners in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I do a lot of digital equity planning work in rural communities um, through the lens of workforce development and support many um, communities with workforce development solutions. What I also recognize, though, in many of the uh, rural communities that I support is that there is some major gaps when it comes to infrastructure as well as digital skilling. And so just as much as we want to talk about the amazing parts of remote work, which I think creates a phenomenal opportunity for rural communities, there is a huge disconnect when it comes to just um, some of the basic digital skilling needs. And while we know that a lot of the um, workforce centers do provide that level of training, when you really think about what we're talking about here at South by Southwest and the... Um, movement that is happening in this country around technology, there is not one workforce development center that I am aware of in this country that is doing things in AI that would prepare talent at such a, um, some talent that may have such fundamental uh, levels of, tr of, of literacy and get them to the level of where employers here at this conference, startup, organizations and small businesses are seeking employees at. So where do we kind of identify the bridge there? Because that's the conversation I want to have and really want to um, be involved in. Um, I, I will say, it, you know, I think it takes a village when it comes to this particular challenge. I'm just going to jump in, and I'm well, a parent I, also. So, for instance, in my local county, I live in Maryland now, not Maine anymore. <laughs> um, but my son is in the Career Technical Pathways Program. So there's partnerships with the local community colleges, the local school boards. Employers will come and talk and, and form what those strategies are. And I recognize that, that dep that's depending upon the tax base and the local communities, but there are, I think, some really good examples of some apprenticeship programs, the pathway programs that start from the middle school and high school levels around the country too. I also think it takes, um, in terms of a village, you know, private sector employers to lean in. My best friend works for Dell and she does a lot of community um, and public engagement and helps from a social equity perspective in terms of getting volunteers to go into local communities and really try to help hands-on teach youth what need they need to be thinking about and what they can learn in order to funnel into talent pipelines. I don't have all the I guess, answers. But it's a big challenge. I, I do want to uh, jump in. And I in guess on. one of the questions there too is, you know, yes, youth, but oftentimes, what we're the labor force we're dealing with, at um, in in a lot of the rural communities, are adult learners. Um, it's their parents of the youth that's in school learning, and it, it's the um, limited understanding of some of the uh, kind of what we would call, you know, in this room, more uh, basic core digital literacy or fluency skills. I was just going to say, I think that some of it is certainly that skill building, um, but employers in the room, like I, some of it is on us to also set aside biases. Mm -hmm. um, and when you're looking at a resume or you're making a hire, thinking about what is it that matters most to you for this job and maybe 
um, not, you know, putting as much weight on where somebody went to school or not putting much, much weight on the fact that they worked at a restaurant through the pandemic because times were tough and it was hard to find something else. Um, you know, some of it I think is on us as the people making those hires to say, what actually matters most in this role that I'm hiring for? And maybe that traditional way of hiring is not the, is not the, the path that I need to go down and giving somebody a shot in this, in this new remote uh, talent pool where I can hire anybody and get the best of the best, maybe changing the way I'm thinking about the best of the best is a, is a good place to start from the employer perspective too. I do want to throw out two things. One is, you know, what's available through the American Job Center and what services are there. A lot of that is governed by regional boards. And uh, because it, the agencies are in the center are, are delivering the services that they're funded to deliver or mandated to deliver. But there's a lot of other things that they could be delivering. And those regional boards are going to make some of the calls on that stuff. So getting in front of them and saying, yeah, this is all great, but we need this. We need, we need this tool. We need this program. This is what our youth are hearing. And this is what our employers need to hear. This is what they need to be skilled up for. So you can, that'd be, a, you know, and those boards are represented. There's certain people that have to be on those boards, but it's a wide variety of people. And they will dictate the priorities of that particular center. The other thing I want to just mention, because you kind of touched on it, is like the elephant in the room. Remote work is successful as long as there's decent internet and Wi-Fi accessibility. And there are parts of this country that are still on dial-up. Yeah. And there's people that can't afford the access. And they sit in the parking lot <laughs> of, of another place that does to access that. It was very tragic when you would see kids that were trying to do their schoolwork sitting in the parking lot of some place. So there is a lot of push at the government level. There's been a, t a lot, billions and billions of dollars that have pushed, been pushed out. But there is a long, long way to go to make that happen. And I track legislation at the federal level. There's at least eight bills in front of Congress right now that have been introduced since the 1st of January when the new Congress convened. And um, if you don't know what's happening, if you, what your state, let your federal representative or your senator is doing, and you think this is a priority, you should get in front of them and say, this is a problem in our state. It's a problem for kids in school. It's a problem for employers who want to hire. It's a problem for people that want a job. Yeah. That's a good one. Thank you. Hey guys, uh, Stephen Conrad and uh, e-commerce. So I lead an e-commerce team that's a one-third local and two-thirds remote. Um, one question is, how do you, so we love to do, you know, happy hours, team lunches, things like that. How do you balance, you know, the, the social aspect of a third of the team getting together more often, developing those relationships? The other two-thirds would love to, for you to fly them in every week, right, to have fun and, and those things, but it's not in the budget. Um, how do you balance that, you know, kind of feeling of team uh, collaboration and, and I guess what do, what do remote workers expect and, and how do you how do you kind of uh, you know balance that is one question. Honestly, and, and and this is not probably popular opinion, but there's an A team and a B team at your company, right? Um, unfortunately, you have people there and then you have people that are not there. <laughs> like that's just you know that's just the truth. So um, moving forward, I would just be very upfront as far as like why you can't fly them in all the time 
explain the situation um, and just try your best. Maybe some more online events only. Um, you know, like the one person on Zoom, everyone on Zoom. Kind of think about that in your social activities a little bit more. Um, and then just maybe some more one-on-one -on -one connections from people in office with people outside. But the reality is, right, like everyone's always trying to say, well, how can we make it the same? Right. It's actually not the same. So I think you actually need to be comfortable with it not being the same and being very transparent about why it's not the same um, and what you're going to do moving forward to kind of kind of help that. One thing I've seen work really nicely, too, is to try to steer clear of after work kind of social engagements. Um, and it's really important because you must consider who might be choosing not to come, but who might not have a choice not to come. For instance, you know, working parents, single parents, people with disabilities or other caregiving requirements. Um, you could be accidentally creating some equity issues between the A and B teams. Um, in a way that you don't have to if you offer different choices and make it part of work time because it is work. It will affect your bottom line. It affects team cohesion, productivity, and performance. Um, those who get it right, you know, they, they outperform, employers outperform their competitors by like 147% if you have strong culture and work engagement in any environment, regardless of location. So I just think, think of ways, and to your point, offer different choices and opportunities and lengths and duration. Um, sometimes it might be fun to do a 15 to 25 minute little social engagement that's only online. Sometimes it might be, you know, something that's a, a real in-person lunch that only the people in your local area can attend, but it's optional. And then maybe you fill people in around what the discussion was or what happened, take pictures, and then share things that way as well. Okay. Yeah, you got to have an annual retreat too, yeah. off-site. I mean, I'm sure you probably have thought about it or doing one. Got to have one of those. Make it more than one day. Um, you know, don't do it in the hometown to save money, right? Like, make it equal, and that's how you can make it equal. The off-site retreats are huge now. They're going to be even more important moving forward. So just find it in the budget. Versus, personally, I feel like the annual retreat versus a whole bunch of small retreats in your area. I mean, if you had to pick one or the other, I, I prefer the, the longer annual retreat where everyone's together, not in the same place that everybody works all the time. We just had one last week. They took, and it was the first one we'd had since pandemic, but... We all went to Nashville. Nobody lives and works there. And we spent a week um, doing team building activities. And it wasn't about, nobody was reporting out on what they did or what kind of work they did. It was all yeah. about- No work. No too. work. I think and the percentages are like 60%, 20% free time, and like maybe 5% work. Yeah, it was, it, there was a schedule, but it wasn't, um, we weren't talking about work. We were having a scavenger hunt and doing all kinds of fun stuff. So. Um, but it really is, it's a morale booster, and it kind of, you know, I got to see people that I've never met that have been working for our organization for three to five years. I, I saw them on Zoom, but, you know, it's not the same thing, but but it was, it's really just it invigorating. It's very invigorating. Thank you so much for that question. I'll make this brief, I know we're at the end. I, a couple comments to the last two. So I work for a completely remote organization. We have a buddy program, which is really helpful. When you come in to onboard you, you have somebody who's matched with you as a peer. They could be from a completely different department. We have five, six different departments. Um, and that way they mentor you and they, um, everything I knew was not actually directly from HR, which can sometimes feel staunch and official, but 
you know, impersonal, but uh, I was directly matched with someone who would tell me, oh, hey, by the way, if you had a question about this policy, like our unlimited time off leave, here's how you should use it, or here's how other people do. So we were able to answer questions, and they met on a monthly cadence. I think that was fabulous. I also found our organization really prime, like focuses on vulnerability. Not, that's not for everybody, but um, we have coffee chats, and we have DEI chats on a monthly basis, and um, our leadership is leading that. Like they will open up about their personal lives, their stories, so that we can connect. And I really think they've done such a great job on that culture building. So that's a plug. And then in answer to the prior question about um, connectivity, a client of ours was just nominated last night at the Innovation Awards, Byte Back, B-Y-T-E, Back. Um, Joe Paul is the executive director for creating and you know, pioneering more connection, precisely because we're, we're talking about people sitting in gas station parking lots or McDonald's just to access Wi-Fi so that their kids can do their school assignment or they can apply for jobs. So they're pioneering that work. I definitely plug everybody to go, go check them out. That's awesome. Thank you. Well, I just want to say thank you to all of my esteemed panelists. Thank you so much for the great conversation. It was fun. Thank you. I know we're standing between you and lunch. If you have any interest in bringing more remote jobs to your communities, I'm happy to point you to the Flex Jobs team who would be happy to partner with you all and, and be able to bring more access to those opportunities. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you.